Section 2 of Camden's Compliment to Walt Whitman by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorders Ages Hence Gathered here, as if sharing one with another a sacred presence, children in common of an event in which, as we run, we may read lustrous omens, our addresses, letters, and briefer greetings, pitched in various heart-tones, which combine to what has proved a great social rather than literary or artistic effect. No record of Walt Whitman can be extricated from its human entanglements. Walt Whitman can never be rendered in special explanations. Notable in his friendships has been his breadth of resource, and remarkable, therefore, in this compilation in its exhibition of variety. To apologize for so pregnant a characteristic would be to turn shamefaced from Walt Whitman's first quality. A few special notes would seem pertinent at this point. The addresses from Henry L. Bonsall, Hamlin Garland, and Lincoln L. Eyre, though exigently crowded out of the list at the banquet, demand and are accorded place in this chronicle. While a portion of the letters received in season were read, and many of them were printed in the local papers, some few even entered into general circulation, it has been left for this vehicle to present a comparatively perfect collection of the messages contributed. Some of the letters and telegrams which appear were sent direct to Walt Whitman, some few to divers members of the arrangement committee, and the main bulk to me. The greetings from abroad, while naturally coming in their own time, often after the event, enter by born credentials into honor and position. It has not been so much the purpose in this publication to charge the banquet direct with exclusive possession of the day, as to bring together, using the banquet as rallying point, the really remarkable salutes, hastened from all quarters in Europe and America, both to Walt Whitman and to his friends in charge of the celebration. Reproduced now in Union, they suggest that a power, the most solid and significant in the poetic history of our time, is back of Walt Whitman's fame. The specification of sources alone strikes those with wonder who have slightingly or insufficiently known his clientele. It is to give shape and permanency to such testimony that this volume is produced. After it was definitely decided to celebrate Walt Whitman's birthday by some sort of public meeting, and after the question of the nature of that meeting had been settled, urgent and careful preparations were at once begun. Originating with a near group of Walt Whitman's friends, who conceived clearly the appropriateness of such an inclusive acknowledgment, there was no intermission of labor until the achieved event itself satisfied them that their plans had been wisely laid. Several business meetings were held. A committee, composed of H. L. Bonsall, Thomas B. Harned, Jeffrey Buckwalter, Alex G. Cattell, Louis K. DeRusse, E. A. Armstrong, Wilbur F. Rose, and Cyrus H. K. Curtis, all local men, was entrusted to the executive work. A circular describing the purpose in view was signed by H. L. Bonsall and Thomas B. Harned, and liberally issued, indistinguishably, to near and remote parties. Walt Whitman was well aware of most that transpired. The circumspection that his physical condition imposes assumed, in our eyes, at this period, a special importance, 
lest by some unforeseen turn he should be kept away from the meeting, and we thereby miss the crown of the feast. There arose details which, from time to time, were referred to him. Fortunately for the completeness of the event, so much depending upon his physical condition, May 31st hailed him refreshed from a good night's sleep, and made that certain which up to the last moment had raised a natural solicitude. The day was warm and capricious, but in the hours of his transit there was no storm, and nature smiled on us, even from clouded brows. Morgan's Hall, with its plain portals, never before had lent itself to an occasion as large and radical as this. Had every man gone there without one articulated word shaped to the purpose, to those who knew by and for what the celebration was caused, and to the world that will one day insist upon confessing its lax hospitality, there floods a significance that lifts the spirit into high regions. Who but caught the sniff of victory in the air? Let the mind's eye run along the line of events from that far year, 1855, to the hour of this latest gathering. From the earliest tracings of Walt Whitman's inimitable sweet courage, when the world held its nose, afraid to smell of the natural divinities, when tradition broke with its rough sword into the very song of the poet, along the evidence of the gradual achievement of friends, the yielding point by point of the protests of error and antipathy, the clustering and fiery admonitory speech of great souls early to greet the world's new summoner, of O'Connor, ample in speech and life, free from all invitations of freedom in his great brother spokesman, and so liberal of the joy of liberty that the world almost feared, as the world always does, the first note of release, his jubilant song. He, in some respects, the largest, the most intrepid, the most unswerving spirit in the literature of the age. Of Burroughs, the philosopher of woods, who came upon Whitman as upon a divinity of the fresh solitudes that drew and enjoined, and who from the day that awoke him has been calmly steadfast to his glorious vision. These things, and many others closely related, have not only done much to give direction to literary genuineness, but have vastly affected the general history of America. The full power of the influence will not in our day be perceived. This evening, however, radiant hints of it were written upon the walls, curved in and out the folds of the pendant flags, and shared the miracle of the vines along the tables that bore the feast. A wise forethought prompted the choice of early evening running from five o'clock on, as best serving the convenience of hosts and guests. Many came markedly before the suggested hour, to linger along conversationally into the general proceedings. As cannot be too clearly understood, this was not designed to be, and was not, a mere craft dinner, celebrating a literary consummation. To one who belonged in the district, the familiar faces of townsmen were right and left, these townsmen were lawyers, officials, commercial authorities, assembled out of the everyday interests of the place, and formed the bulk of the diners. In the half-hour that preceded the banquet, the upper rooms of the building arrayed notable groups, and served as a broad field for introductions. The drink on the table, the negro attendants, the assiduity of the committeemen, still gravely solicitous, were minor facts to remember. The irrepressible reporter was at work with the first arrival. Richard Watson Gilder, 
Julian Hawthorne, Hamlin Garland, and other distant comers were distinctly centers of interest. Here were men prominent in the political life of Philadelphia, men known in her courts, men engaged in her large trade enterprises, and interested in her philanthropies. And observantly intermingling with all these, editors who kept in the background of apparent participation, but who had come leaving all but eyes and ears at home. From across the river were also a dozen figures of young men doing handiwork in a rising literature, and not unnoted, John Foster Kirk, veteran in his own right and veteran by memory of the great Prescott. Not to mention at all, yet not to spare Johnson, of New York, gloriously devoted beyond any statement that could be made here. McKay, explicitly now Whitman's publisher, who will be best remembered for his connection with Whitman after the period of the Osgood ignominy. Harrison S. Morris, one of the newer men, whose service and recognition has been a growing quantity. Let me pass on, naming half a dozen who stand very close to Whitman, and deserve more than a casual deference. Gilchrist, for one, who, now happily in America, could give from British lips, as if out of generous memory of his famous mother, a tender of the unfailing British remembrance of Whitman. For another, Francis Howard Williams, loyal in Whitman's first years in this latitude, when to be loyal and an affectionate host, served an imminent need and was a title of nobility, and still more. Clifford himself a philosopher, product of New England's best influences, out of his profound knowledge of the human side of literature, realizing and incessantly proclaiming Whitman's true stature among the prophets, while confirmed in all convictions by his affectionate personal contact with the seer. And here, too, Harned, whose faith and service grown not only of proximity, but of natural tendencies, has been an unbroken testimony and Bonsall, through many years of journalistic experience, missing no opportunity for the frankest espousal of Whitman, and Buckwalter, who, with the other adjacent two, had labored so ardently to protect and to further this celebration. The predominating activity of these men threw everything that transpired into an atmosphere of personal affection. This had been a guarantee invoked from the first. Whitman himself, was not to come to share the feast. He needed to husband his strength. He was more necessary to the success of the after-addresses. Following the chat of the groups in the reception rooms there resulted, upon a whispered hint which quickly circulated, a quiet flow of people to the hall below. Three tables had been spread, two almost the full length of the floor, and one crossing them at the head, set apart for those who were to speak, and so arranged that any speaker could at once face the whole line of the guests. The music on the platform, the banners on the walls, the flowers on the table, a bouquet at each plate, and clusters here and there, united to enrich the impression of the hour. Yet nothing was elaborate, and there was no ostentation. On the menu card a phototype portrait of Whitman stood felicitously alone, without name or word to any effect, and within opposing or uniting influences, foodstuffs ranged as the feast of reason, and matters of speech as the flow of soul. The afternoon was warm. The wax tapers gleamed with persistent uncertainty. The winds out of doors kept up a rather ominous melody. Everyone had it in mind that, after all, this was interim, that the real message-bearer was yet to come, and that in our dining we were merely halting on a journey. With this consciousness everywhere prevailing, an hour passed. 
Good humor was plenty, and talk was free. Was Walt Whitman sure to come? Penetrating all else, this was upon questioning lips, and passed like a charge from man to man. Walt Whitman was sure to come. Yes! By and by the hint was given that he had been sent for. Then, after the lapse of ten minutes or so, interspersed with further murmur all around the room, a policeman's cry, almost inaudible near the door, He's coming! The intelligence rapidly spread. Every man turned, napkin in hand, expectant and absorbed. Chair and guest, carried together upstairs by two capable policemen, were wheeled into the hall. Whitman's Canadian friend and nurse, Edward Wilkins, guiding. Whitman responded at once to the intense but infusive reception by removing his hat and waving it right and left. The whole audience, risen to its feet but saying nothing, gave him a reverent welcome. How deep that moment of silence! Not till later on were the cheers given, but when given they were given several times and vehemently. Once Mr. Corning arose with humorous deliberation and said it was on his conscience that we ought to give three cheers for Walt Whitman, and three better cheers than followed never greeted any man. But now, on his entrance, the first to accost Whitman was a colored woman, assisting with a culinary apparatus, who rushed impetuously at him. I thought Whitman's initial expression a wearied one, but he was composed and not slow in getting his place at the head of the room. At this juncture there was a spontaneous clapping of hands, after which a general resumption of seats. The guest kept his own chair, which was wheeled up against the table. At his right, in order, were Gilder and Gilchrist, at his left, Gray, the chairman, Garland, Hawthorne, Garrison, and Clifford. Harned, Williams, Bonsall, and Iyer were at the long tables. It was interesting to note that Walt Whitman, who had come to stay fifteen minutes to half an hour, stayed from two to three hours. There is no doubt but that the aspect of the assemblage inspired and invigorated him. While it was true in the best sense that the occasion owned everything to him, it was also true in another and minor sense that he was indebted to it for at least part of his present almost exhilaration. For, looking down the long line, the almost crowded tables, it was a subtle influence caught out of each face, a pervading living quality in each eye, that for the time being, and, as I believe, for days afterwards, perhaps as lasting even today, electrically imparted strength and glow to heart and limb. For this was the year 1889. The city was one not famous in general or literary annals, and a deference which, if prophesied for Walt Whitman a quarter of a century ago, would have been deemed preposterous, now issued out of the most unpretending environment. So comes a prophet at last, who defeats the old proverb. And this Walt Whitman must in some measure have recognized. For he is a man whom mere appearances never deceive, a man who measures good and ill with the same calm austerity. Now the speaking commenced. The placid chairman, Samuel H. Gray, came first with his address of welcome. Walt Whitman's little speech was brought in as a response to this, and as a general message for those, whether present or absent, who had thought well to recognize the day. Then were introduced in their order, not exactly as announced on the program, but as they are now placed, Thomas B. Harned, Gilbert H. Gilchrist, Francis Howard Williams, John H. Clifford, Charles G. Garrison, E. A. Armstrong, Richard Watson Gilder, and Julian Hawthorne. 
As the addresses progressed, the scene warmed. Along down the hall, men sat sideways against the tables. The reporters all clustered in the foreground. Many smoked cigars. Chairs were tipped. Everything appeared untrammeled. After the momentary expression of weariness, Whitman's whole manner changed to an absorbed ease. He dealt affectionately by a special bottle of champagne that was brought him. His own speech, which he had printed on slips, and of which, with an interlined edition, he gave me copies liberally for the reporters, was read, while not powerfully, with a beautiful simplicity, ease, and sweetness. His part from that time forward was the part of a child. Sentiments that touched him in the utterances of others drew forth little exclamations of attention or approval or even of dissent. He threw his own presence out of a striking objectivity. Sometimes he would applaud with his bottle there on the table. Strangely, today he was black-coated. The glory of his hair dispensed with a forced nimbus. In front of him had been set a basket of exquisite flowers, out of which, selecting special samples, which he again and again raised to his nose, he seemed to take much enjoyment. It was characteristic of him that, several times, having messages to deliver, he signaled me across the hall. Seeing him so comfortable, the guests were eased. Social tyrannies relaxed. Taking air of Whitman's presence, there prevailed the port and ring of an exquisite freedom. The controlling vocal manner was a rich union of the elements of perception and emotion, which as a characteristic is perhaps unprecedentedly remarkable in living in Walt Whitman's works and in the man himself. He has since remarked, I was averse to the public dinner at the outset, but said I should let the boys have their own way. And so the boys had their own way, and Whitman rescued the occasion by being one of the boys himself. Details running into his little interposed remarks are barely possible here. There was no break in the proceedings as long as he remained. Had he stayed till midnight, the rally of his friends would have continued. But that was not to be. We were singularly and unexpectedly blessed in holding him as long as we did. He kept his place till Hawthorne had spoken, and Ingersoll's telegram, delivered to me in the hall and read by Clifford, had had its strong and pithy effect. His desire to withdraw was quickly, though not formally, communicated to the meeting. He slowly arose from his chair. Gilder and I helped him on with his big blue wrapper. Every man was on his feet in an instant. The chairman, standing in the center of a thick group, said he would ask George Pierre, who was present, and who is known for much odd and piquant experience in journalist clubs, to lead off with a song, with Auld Lang Syne, if that could be, and Pierre responding, the melody struggled from lip to lip, and finally broke out into a curl power that even elicited Whitman's contribution. Then Whitman sat down in his chair again, gave quiet response to the hurried special congratulations of familiars and others who crowded about him, and was slowly wheeled out of his narrow quarters. His basketed flowers, put in his lap and so taken home, for days after kept place and odor on the stove in his little parlor. One hand and another, one solicitous face and another, was bent upon him with its eager comradeship. But the chair was kept on its way, parting the crowd gently, and in the end reaching the door and passing out into the lobby. Not so proclaimed, this was still the dropping of the curtain. Again the policemen did their special and cherished service. Will it be a reminiscence for the ears of children's children? 
Soon was Whitman gone into the night. All attempts to reorganize the meeting were fruitless. Within five minutes following Whitman's departure, the great mass of people had left the hall, and efforts to read letters and telegrams were therefore mainly fruitless. Whitman gone, the meeting had gone with him, as though a more than Hamelinic pipe had been played. No one lingered but the assiduous reporters, who, though the first to come, were the last to leave. I was asked the other day, Is it left for you to sum up the event? But what need to sum up that which, rather than being fragmentary, was at once a direct and entire story? Camden, honoring Walt Whitman, was more than Camden. For through Camden the world had voice, and that world not the world of a more or less petty and undiscriminating today, but the world that our poet in his noblest moods has invoked. Camden had risen to its spiritual gifts. Breaking away from concrete tyrannies, Camden in this act bore testimony that Walt Whitman, prophesying a grander America, and wearied and worried by no scholastic chastisement, was to be rendered just tribute at last. Extravagant as it may seem to say so, this banquet would not have had half the significance given strictly by authors or made exclusively literary. Fortunately, it was not what would be called a literary occasion. Rescued from a restricted, it was rendered to the greater America. What one town, in the sense that includes all classes, may do today, a developed America and a freed Europe will ultimately compound in sharing on their vaster areas. But whatever the extent of recognition, the type of recognition will remain what it was this day to the simple and single constituency. Except for the absence of women and of the distinctly mechanical classes, the unconstrained infelicity of the event was from beginning to end as generous as the spirit of the man it was aimed to celebrate. O'Connor said of Walt Whitman in 1866, To the hour of judgment, to the hour of sanity, let me resign him. However near or remote the arrival of that inevitable sunrise, this record may be taken with reference to it as a substantial contribution. Where thirty years ago men scorned to seriously discuss Walt Whitman, a representative paper sends today one of its best men, by interesting accident, set right next to me at the banquet, to report the spirit of the occasion. Thou must be a fool and a churl for a long season, says Emerson addressing the ideal poet. Darwin once wrote, in the earlier years of his knotty labors, and though I shall get more kicks than halfpennies, I will, life serving, attempt my work. Life has served Walt Whitman, to whom it is as natural to live heroically as to live at all, to a harvest of his own generous sowing. Criticism has entered upon the stage of kindliness. One more step, the step of unconventional examination, and the deed is done. Camden's demonstration has helped to clear the air. After this, certain of the old protests must forever stand convicted. Reporters, editors, writers, men of the law and of affairs, giving forth here an utterance of faith, have passed the word far onward. The attitude of the press was liberal and affectionate from the first. The unanimity of its good feeling was so marked that some confessed a disappointment, contending that a feast without spice had lost an essential factor. But however Walt Whitman, as he declared, 
may have felt smothered in the sugar and honey of attention, to his best friends it is clear enough that this event, multiplied a thousand times, will be needed before the balance of justice in the world's treatment of him has been secured. And now, sacredly to be ventured, among pulsing and imperative last utterances, taking shape of an intense experience, how can I send this little memorial, trusted to my hands, off on its career, without a word of my own, sharing the privilege of the feast? For though silent before the common temptations to speech, at this moment, in this circle, body and spirit prevailed upon and absorbed, I have stood and watched, counting confidently in this victory, my own victory, and America's as well, and recalling with grateful thought my gracious opportunities through which personally to know the man on whom so great a charge has been laid. Standing by Walt Whitman's side through all the battle of the past year, braving his dangers, sharing his defeats and rescues, glorying in the love that allied me in ever more willing service, watching the coming and going of friends, sensitive to the fine growth of popular reverence, who could have known better than I knew, looking into his face that memorable night, how potent the chosen instruments of his love, his more than armored courage and justice, had proved in the end. I dare not withdraw from the group, nor stay and say nothing. But staying, and given voice, let me vein my thought, though it were brought into a sentence, with a flow of heart's blood. Let us all, I should say, cherish the fact that this was a non-literary incident, as Walt Whitman is a non-literary man, and his books are non-literary books, that as Walt Whitman's future is in the hands, not of the anti-literary, but of a more than literary America, so it rang well in the tone of all this day said and done, that it struck out of our largest and most varied life. It has seemed to me that this is what Walt Whitman himself must have desired. Faith such as his guarantees universal means and universal ends. He realized early that the world misunderstood only that it might eventually understand. He has known well enough that the man who has the truth has no enemies, that whatever traduction appears self-appoints its doom. He has been serene in physical trials and just as serene in spiritual battle. He knows that if he is a son, he must have a son's patience, that if he is not, impatience will neither hasten nor defer obscuration. He has steadfastly turned his back on every effort of friend or critic to bring him to endorse half-universes. He has rung the alarm for behoof of humanism in literature, the only real conservator. He has shown that America can persevere in but one course, and that course is the course of the stars and tides, redolent of entire health and of untrammeled manhood. He has protested against obscene delicacy and has given to the word sacredness a large meaning impossible to even the best of past scriptures. Oh, what a current of deep meanings seizes the first thought of enumeration. I dare not proceed, but to stand near as I have stood near, to know in his deeds and on his lips a never-swerving confirmative testimony, to realize the harmony of his past and his present, to catch and stay out of the hurrying life of our time the eloquent records of a consecrated day, 
not fleeting in ephemeral flatteries, but throbbing in capacious evidences, drawn from the very heart of revelation and devotion, is to stand in the presence of that supreme, that last, that consoling circumstance of worlds, which the story of every discoverer and his final glad audience unfolds. H.L.T. Camden, New Jersey, July 4th, 1889. End of section 2